let's continue to magnify the name of the Lord, to make him bigger and bigger in, uh, as we prepare for the week ahead and things ahead. And let's begin doing that by grabbing your Bible and going to the contents page. I want everybody to go to the contents page, okay? All right. We have not been in the book of Daniel long enough for you to kind of have that section of your Bible where it's like kind of all worn out and tattered and worked out yet there. So uh, a lot of times people do the fan method. You know what I'm talking about? I know it's somewhere around here, but I'm too embarrassed to have other people think I don't know where it is. So go to the contents page, look for the Daniel. It's about two-thirds of the way in the Old Testament, and uh, go there. What page is it for you? Okay, go there. <laughs> Mine's 737. All right, go there. Now, as you're going there, last week we learned, talked about how the Bible, our Bible, its ordering is not ordered chronologically, okay? In other words, it doesn't start with Genesis and move a timeline. That's not how it's ordered. We talked last week about the structure. You can see the slide up on the screen that we used from last week. Daniel is in what portion of the Bible? The who? The major prophets. It's in the major prophets section of the Bible because it's one of the longer ones. Daniel is the writer, a real Daniel, not a ghost writer from 2nd century B.C. This is Daniel writing from 6th century B.C., okay? Now let's jump into verses 1 and 2, what we covered last week. I hope for those of you who were here last week, you'll begin to, as we're reading this, it's like, oh yeah, I've got a bigger context of what's going on. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jerusalem is the main city in Judah, the southern kingdom. He besieged it. He took it over by war. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. That's an amazing thing. Don't lose sight of that. God gave his own people over to the most idolatrous nation on the planet, potentially in history, but certainly at that time. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. God even gave over some of the items from his own temple to them. And look where they end up. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, Babylon, to the house of his God, Nebuchadnezzar did, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Wow. Well, for some who are kind of like, okay, I remember some things, but I'm not remembering some things, we are going to do a historical reminder from last week in just a little over a minute. Are you ready? Here we go. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned and were kicked out of the Garden of Eden really because of idolatry. God, some years later, picks Abraham. Picks Abraham to father a nation, makes a covenant with Abraham that he would raise a nation of people that would be priests of the world. Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has Joseph. Joseph ends up going to Egypt, sold as a slave by his brothers, lives in Egypt. Uh, this nation begins growing in Egypt as a nation of slaves. Then Moses comes along. The exodus takes place. They wander around for a while because 
because of idolatry uh, for 40 years. Moses dies. Joshua picks up uh, the, the, the baton. He takes the conquest into the promised land that God had, leads them. They take over that. Then we jump ahead a bit, and we have the period of the ruling judges at the time. Samson of which one is who you're familiar with. Then later on, we have the kingdom gets to its pinnacle, gets to its zenith with David and Solomon. The temple is built, but then the kingdoms divide in two with the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. God allows Assyria as a judgment to come down, take out the northern kingdom Israel. The people are exiled from that area. Then Babylon comes in. God allows them to bring judgment on the southern kingdom. The people are exiled. Daniel and others are prisoners in Babylon at 605 BC. All right. That's verses one and two, where we're at. Now, I just want to say this. We step back in all of this, and we go, God rules. God rules all. Hey, listen, friends, I just even want to know, as we come up to a time of politics here, big time, and voting, can I just remind us, God rules? The answers are not in people. The answers are in the ruler. He's moving all things, and history shows the fact that he is the one who rules. And by the way, may it remind us that he rules also as the judge. Well, today we pick up in verse 3. Verse 3. Well, before we begin reading here, I want to ask you a question for you just to ponder here, okay? It's a simple question, but it's a deep question, and it's a very serious question. Just be thinking this question as we're spending our time in God's word. Who are you? Really. Who are you? Drop the image. Strip away the titles. Take off the masks. Bag the clutter. Ditch the schedule, cut to the core. Who are you? God, I pray as we dig into your word that you would speak, that you would allow us just to take in you. This is a story about some amazing teens. No, no, no. This is a story about an amazing God. And like Nick said earlier, may this text today stretch our view of you. Help us to see you bigger. Because I know I need to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 3, verse 3. Then, in other words, after what had happened in verses 1 and 2, then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, commanded. Okay, didn't suggest, didn't just make a, a request. He commanded, and he commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. Now, let me make a comment on this word eunuch. What does this mean? Well, now, normally when we think of eunuch, we think of someone who's been castrated. We think of 4-H fair. We, uh, we, uh, th- sorry, uh, I wasn't in my notes. 
Um, but we think of a castrated male in this situation. I just want to bring this and, and bring this to our attention here because in Isaiah 56.3, that is what this word does mean. However, in other passages, like Genesis 37.36, it refers to Potiphar using this word. I'm going to say this. I don't think Potiphar was a eunuch. Okay. Instead, it uses this word not only in the scriptures, but in other historical documents referring to officials, court officers. Now, that, in fact, is what I think this is referring to. Um, it's debated and talked about, and, you know, is it a big deal? No, but it is an interesting reality, especially with the, time, the, the passages and the weeks that we have ahead here. But I want to let you know, I, I think this is referring to... Uh, Ashpenaz is a court officer. Uh, two reasons for that. One is the, actually the original word that formed this word had nothing to do with any kind of sexual impotence kind of an idea to it, for one, historically. Uh, secondly, in verse 4, we're going to be talking about this, this word of no blemish. There's no physical defect in these guys. And, and in this, just carrying it on, that was a big deal. And so were, were Daniel and these guys eunuchs? No, I don't think that's likely the case. That's why in the New American Standard and the New International Version, in your versions, it actually says he was a chief of his court officials. It's actually made an interpretive decision. Okay, The English Standard Version made the decision not to make that interpretive decision because of some of the debate that's out there. But I just want to put it on the table. This doesn't change who Christ is. This is just one of these things as we're studying, and it'll have implications later and on, actually, as we go. But I want for you to know that. I think what he's talking about here is Ashpenaz is Nebuchadnezzar's chief official. All right? So the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief official, to do something. To bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Now, I have to make a comment here because there's some translation decisions that have to be made here as well. If you'll notice, it says uh, uh, to bring some of the people. Now, is this referring to people from Judah that were lay people like you and I, as well as nobility and royalty? Or was this just referring to royalty? The New American Standard leaves rooms for both. It kind of says it's including some royalty and nobility. Uh, the English Standard Version, New International Version, really has the idea of only royalty and nobility. I think it's the latter. I think it's just royalty and nobility people. Because literally the translation is of the seed of the kingdom or of the princes of the kingdom. Okay? So I think what we're not talking about here is going through an Israelite Judah idol process. In other words, where all the lay people, just normal people that haven't made it big in society, you know, all lining up outside the building, coming through, and there's three Babylonian judges, one the dog, and you know, who's going through these guys. And no, I don't think that's what's taking place here. It's not just the normal lay people, but I think this is really referring to those that are the leaders those who come from the elite, those who come from the royalty or nobility. Now, imagine. Imagine with me that you are one of these guys selected. You're a war trophy. Please understand, 
You are a slave. And your life has just been completely pulled apart. Taken from your home. Taken from your family. Taken from everything that you know. Everything has been stripped away. You are in a foreign land, and you can't do a lick about it. You are a war trophy slave. That's the setting. Your privileged upbringing, whatever that might have looked like, it's pretty irrelevant right at the moment. king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief official, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Uh, who are these? Oh, verse 4, youth. What does youth mean? Well, youth means, some say it's anywhere from 13 to 15, others 14 to 17. Uh, let's just do this. Let's pick the middle. 15. Okay? This is a teenager. These are teenagers that Nebuchadnezzar is said to pick. Go pick some teens from the royalty, from the nobility of the kingdom of Judah. Go pick some of them. This was all about a strategic selection process, and it was based upon seven criteria. Here are the criteria. Let's look at the passage. Verse 4, youths, number one, without blemish. In other words, no physical defect. Secondly, they're to be of good appearance. I mean, if you're going to pick them, pick them good-looking. These are teen six-pack ab model guys. I mean, that's really the text is saying, listen, we want the good-looking ones. That's just straight up what it's saying. And they're to be skillful in all wisdom. Literally, it's having insight in all wisdom, proficient in wisdom. In other words, I'll term it this way. This is Proverbs kind of wisdom. Teens. Teens. Fourth, endowed with knowledge. This is a technical knowledge. This is literally knowing knowledge. This isn't so much the brainiac academic knowledge as it is a technical knowledge. You can know calculus and be able to run the calculations like crazy and yet not have the lick of an idea on how to take it to real life. These are guys who have the ability to take it to real life. They have technical knowledge, knowledge about things. Fifth, they also, though, understand learning. They're able to discern academic learning and thought. Uh, sixth, they're competent to stand in the king's palace. And one who has strength stands in his presence. I, you're a teen, and you're standing in front of the king. Now, that might be kind of doable if it was a friendly king. But this is a king that just came and conquered your land, took all everything out, conquered you, took you as a slave, stand in front of him. It's got to be a teen that can stand in front of the king in even that kind of a situation. And seventh, and to teach them literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Uh, they need to be able to be ones who are taught to write and speak Chaldean. So here's how I could sum it up. They're looking for a 15-year-old model type 
with Solomon-like life wisdom, superior tactician in all things technical. They're an A-plus Stanford-bound high school student who can learn to read, write, speak other language, and stand before professors, tycoons, and world leaders with confidence. Let me kind of go out on a limb here and say, I don't know if any of us would fit that when we were 15. Not me. Okay? These guys are cream of the crop, one in a million. But they're war trophies. They are teen slaves. As I talk about this, please don't get the idea that, boy, are they lucky. These teens are prime meat to be coerced into becoming leaders for Nebuchadnezzar that provide a lasting control of the Israelites that have been exiled. That's the plan. This is all about a strategic selection of the right kind of guys. So that's what they do. Now, what do you do with teen boys? You feed them well. Because here we go. It's strategic selection, and so Nebuchadnezzar provides strategic food. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now, this was not spam food. Okay? This was lavish, cream-of-the-crop kind of food. But it was also, the meat was likely taken from animals that were sacrificed to Babylonian gods. Small g gods. The wine was likely involved, part of it was involved in the process of being poured over the sacrifices as they are being given to the Babylonians' gods. But the food itself, when it came down to the goodness of it, Man, it was a perfect kind of food to give teen boys just to let them eat up and eat up and eat up and ready to learn. But there was a lot more behind it than just good, solid food. You see, this food was designed to win their hearts. This was all strategic. All strategic. They could have fed them good food from other places, but no, this food came from the king's table. So the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. So strategic selection, strategic food, now some strategic training. They were educated to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So they were now put in a three-year course. So if I'm 15, that's 15, then 16, then 17, then 18. Just imagine high school. Okay, but high school at a whole different level. Okay? I don't think there was maybe like gym class and stuff, but here's some of the courses that they had. Babylonian philosophy. Babylonian religion. They talked about Babylonian science. They talked about Babylonian occult, Babylonian magic, Babylonian astrology. They talked about Babylonian medicine. Now, are you getting kind of an idea of a commonality that's in all this? Whatever they were learning was all about Babylonian fill-in-the-blank. 
This is about training these boys to be able to learn these things. And it was all done in the primary language of Babylon. Now let's just start putting the pieces of the puzzle together. What's going on here? Well, it's not because Nebuchadnezzar just feels really sympathetic about some of these guys. These are pawns. These are being brainwashed, strategically worked pawns. Think of a triangle. You take a triangle and you start just notching. You just start nicking off the corners of the triangle. And you take a nick now and a nick next week and a little chip next week and then the next week and then the next week. And you eventually end up with a circle. And with a circle, you end up just taking a circle and you just roll it wherever you want it to go. Uh, That's what this was all about. Nebuchadnezzar was strategically, as a conquering king, grabbing the elite to move them, train them, and take them where he wants them to go for his own purposes. And oh, may I remind you of this? Jehovah allowed this to happen. In fact, the text had said, Jehovah brought them on. That's the situation these guys are in. By the way, Who are these guys? Well, let's take a look. Verse 6. Here's who the guys are. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now, there's a very important statement at the beginning of this verse, and that statement is among these. Now, if I were to say among this group here, I picked this row, that means that there are others who aren't being named. Okay, so understand in this process, there were not just four boys, teens, being brought to Babylon. There were, among the ones that were brought, these four. How many were there? Eight, 10, 20, 50? Don't know. But we know this, there were four that are now being talked about. Please keep this in your mind. Because understand, when they go back to the, to the dorm These four are dealing with living with these others as well. Okay? Huge behind-the-scenes reality implications taking place here. Among these, so these were the four. There's Daniel. Daniel's name means Jehovah is my judge. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. Mishael means who is like Jehovah. Uh, Azariah, Jehovah is my help. Now, you're in Babylon, a polytheistic world, and you're kind of like, got a problem here. We have a problem here because all of your names are cored back, centered back to what? Jehovah. Oh, they don't believe in a monotheistic worldview. They have a polytheistic worldview. So what do you do? If you're trying to take these boys and chip the corners off to get them to roll where you want them to roll... This is one of the things you got to do. You can't have an anchor down in their name. So you change their names. Makes sense to me if you're doing that. So that's what they do. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the tribe of Judah. So what do they do? Now they give them strategic identities. Verse 7, and the chief of the officials gave these names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshar. 
may bell, not bell my bell, like Southern Bell, but may bell a god, a small g god in Babylon, may bell protect the king, may bell protect his life. No longer is Jehovah my judge, but may Baal protect his life. To Hananiah, they gave the name Shadrach. It means the command of Aku, the moon god. To Mishael, they gave the name Meshach. Who is what Aku is? Who is what the moon god is? Eh, I got an idea. How about Jehovah? Oh, let's take that one out of his name. Uh, Azariah, Abednego, a servant of Nego, another god. Do you see what's going on? This is so strategic, folks. We would, we would call this all brainwashing, all brainwashing to a purpose. And that's what's happening. By the way, parents, the fact that these four boys all had names tied to Jehovah if you will, silently behind the curtain tells us where his parents, where these boys' parents were at. Because these parents had the ability to choose the names of these four boys. And so they go and they choose names all tied to Jehovah. And with what we're about to see take place, behind the scenes, the scripture doesn't tell it, but we kind of get a crack into it here, be just out of their names. These boys came from parents who were secured on the reality of Jehovah is God. And now they are taken away, and who are these boys going to be now? This is like leaving home. Remember those days? Those of you who of us who are older and leave home, now the question is, is now who are you going to be? Well, let's take a look and let's see who they are going to be. Because what's been happening here is they are now in a three-year process of being distracted with the purpose of deadening them. You see, just distract and then deaden. Hey, hey. May I remind us before we go any further here. We live in a world that would love to distract us and deaden us. We live in a time, by the way, we live in a spiritual reality to where there's not only a world, but there is a Satan that would like nothing else than to begin chipping away at who you and I are. And he wants to distract us. And he wants to deaden us. And he doesn't have to take us out like Nebuchadnezzar. All he has to do is distract and deaden you. And as you and I become distracted, if you and I become deadened, we're pretty irrelevant to God anyway. We get this, but yet in a different reality. But we get this stuff. Well, let's take a look at who these boys are. Verse 8. Uh, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. Underline that. This is the pinnacle statement of this first chapter. But Daniel, a 15-year-old teen. But Daniel resolved 
The word resolved here, it's talking about the will. It's talking about the inner man. It's talking about the heart. This is talking about a conviction. But Daniel had a conviction. Oh, love this. A 15-year-old teen dude. This guy is, oh, I want to be like this guy when I grow up. I mean, look at this guy. Everything stripped away. Everything taken away. He had the perfect opportunity just to bag Jehovah and be entertained and distracted for the rest of his life in happiness. He really did. But Daniel resolved, resolved not to defile not to make himself impure. Listen, this was a spiritual thing. In other words, this is a, a himself and God thing. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. Oh, what a guy. Someone that does that has to have a really big view of God. Someone who does that has to have a high importance on the God and me thing. This is a for real thing. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. This is about thinking set apart unto God. A 15-year-old whose life is torn apart. He's given a horrific, unfair life situation. And yet he's set apart unto God. We sang earlier about how God is holy, holy, holy. The word for holy, every time you sing that, I think too often we really don't know what that means. and We just sing it like it's some high word, and it is. But what it really means is God is set apart from us. God is unlike us in just every way, except for the fact we're created in his image. God is completely set apart. And here Daniel is saying, listen, I want to set my, myself apart unto the Lord. 15-year-old, in this situation, what a spiritual stud. Living set apart is about seeing God rules in my worldview. But look at what he does. He does this because he has his strategic resolution in him. Listen, it's the a slave, God still rules. I'm a pawn, you know what? God still rules. My life is unfair right now, God still rules. You know, my life hasn't turned out to be what I expected it to be, God still rules. My life right now, I don't even really like what's going on in my life right now. You know what? God still rules. And that relationship is a priority. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, please understand. In other words, Daniel isn't this kind of guy who's just walking around and going, I'm a teen of conviction. And then he's like, whatever. Uh, what Daniel's doing here is he says, in essence, I'm a teen of conviction, and I'm going to apply it to this. It's interesting to me because Daniel in the text here doesn't say the fact of, you know what, this three-year training, I'm out. 
I draw the line with that. He doesn't do that. He, he, he also doesn't do it to his name. You know what your name thing? I draw the line there. I'm not going there. What does he do? He draws the line here on the food and the drink deal. Why? I think, and I say it that way, I think for two reasons. Number one, because Daniel, we've already learned, is quite a guy here. And I think Daniel understands that the meat was being sacrificed to idols. And Daniel is someone who has a spiritual relationship with Jehovah, a real living relationship with Jehovah, doesn't want to go there. And he also knows that the wine that's there to be drank is wine that is part of that process as well. And he's like, you know what? I don't want to participate in that. I got to tell you, I think Daniel also in this is drawing the line because he's like, I know this is a slow fade deal and out of some of this area, I've got to draw the line somewhere because I know what you're trying to do. I think you are trying to take the food and the training and everything and you're trying to just make me into a circle so you can just push me where you want to be. But I want to tell you what, when it comes down to somewhere, some point, sometime, I draw the line here. This, the food thing, that's a me and God thing. I love this kid. Now, let's carry this on out. Because he comes to the point where he has a strategic resolution. This is where I draw the line. But he also has this strategic action. He applies it to something. The wine and the food here. Okay? So in this... Now, we would oftentimes think, and how a lot of people unfortunately go about it, is they kind of like put their chest out, and it's like, I'm a man of conviction, and I'm going to rip your head apart. Isn't that it? You know, and it's, sometimes it's like, you know, you're legalistic. You're just rude. You're just like, uh, you're a bulldozer. Let's look at Daniel. Therefore, he asked the chief of the officials, to allow him not to defile himself. I want one of these guys around us. <laughs> and look at what he's doing here. He's not coming in like a bulldozer and a shotgun. I'm a man of conviction, and this is it. <laughs> and he's just blowing things away. This is a guy who's coming in, and he, what does he do? He goes to the chief official, the one who's his overseer. Oh, by the way, uh, God's authority put over him. And he goes to him and he asks, Sir, I'd like to ask a question. May I please be allowed not to be put in a situation, in this situation where this would defile me? The guts. He's a slave. I want to tell you, webbed within all this stuff is a faith view. I think there's been prayer, prayer behind this, thinking behind this. This wasn't just a this is the kind of thing to where it's more like. This is what's going on, and Daniel's watching. Listen, I'm going to tell you, why does anyone respond this way? Because they have a view that God rules. And he sees life through a ruler God. 
And he's thinking this through. God, listen, this is about me and you. You've allowed this in my life. We don't see him going crazy. What we do is we think he comes to this pagan authority figure and he says, please, sir, please, sir, just a little more bread. You know, I mean, you just see this kind thing, kind of a thing going on here. The guts for him to do that is just staggering to me. The graciousness upon which it's done is just staggering to me. And I say this, a great example for us. But please, this isn't about lifting Daniel up. The whole reason Daniel is doing this is because of what Nick said earlier this morning when we got started. Because Daniel saw a big God. And he wanted to apply it into the realities of his life. Even when his life was, if you will, quote, horrible. God still used him. Look at this. Let's just keep reading. Therefore, he asked the chief of the officials not to allow him to defy himself. Can, can you just imagine being Ashpenaz there? <laughs> You're asking me? Oh, but look, I, I think this is, uh, look at nine. Oh, I love this. And God gave Daniel favor. That's a relationship. That's a living, breathing, faith relationship. Daniel stepped out, acted upon his conviction, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the officials. In other words, Ashpenaz. And, and Ashpenaz said to Daniel, Daniel, I, I fear my lord the king. Well, he shouldn't do that. Uh, folks, yes, he should. This guy's not saved, okay? So for one, he should have a proper fear of authority. Number two, this guy could give a rip about God ruler, okay? So in essence, he's responding. He's going, hey, I fear the Lord my king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are in your own age? You see, there were other youths in the camp, in the dorm. So you would endanger my head, the king. He's right. He's exactly right. By the way, I'm really just amazed at seeing how God did give compassion because he could have just like had his head off. And he explains it. And look what Daniel says. And so Daniel says, you're a bully. <laughs> it's not what goes on here. We don't know what Daniel says after this. I, I, I'm just going to make a guess, sanctified imagination here. He graciously said, okay, thank you, sir. And he walked away. He went back. He said, God, now what? <laughs> God, now what do I do? So what does he do next? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, and the other two. You see, this is Ashpenaz's, Ashpenaz's uh, a steward. This is under Ashpenaz. Daniel's not going to give up. This is a man of conviction. And he goes to him, and look at this, verse 12. Again, test your servants for 10 days. Now, Daniel's thought about exactly what he's going to say. I think he even learned from his first request. 
because now he's literally going to the steward, taking into consideration where he's at and the reality of his condition and before the king. So he comes up with this idea. Hey, I've got an idea. Test your servants. Oh, by the way, that's what faith is, all about God testing his servants. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal your servants according to what you see. You see how Daniel is literally now putting his own life in the hands of the steward here. In other words, he's going to say, you know what? I'm going to allow God to work through imperfect authority put over me and let them even have the choice in this because God can work through them. And he comes in and he says, so verse 14, so the steward listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. In other words, so every time they went to the meal, they were over at the salad bar. And in verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh, or, you know, they kind of had that, they weren't like becoming uh, fat, they were in essence becoming stronger and looked better and all the, than all the yous who ate the king's food. Verse 16, so the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. I like what's happening. Keep eating that. Hey, we're going to stop right here. Now, you may say, yeah, but I want to kind of finish the rest of the story. No, I want to stop right there. Because too often this section just gets so blown by and we go to next week, if you will. And I want for us just to camp on this reality this week. Here is a guy who's put in a situation. And yet he still sees God as ruler of all things. A young man of conviction, a young man of action, and a young man of faith. I started out by asking the question, who are you? The reason I want to stop right here is because I really think we find out who Daniel and his three buddies are in this passage. And it's appropriate to ask, with my view of God, what would I do in that situation? Oh, let me bring it more real. With the things that you have going on in life right now, are you living as a man, as a woman, as a young man, as a young woman of conviction? Not based upon what you want, but based upon a relationship with God. Are you drawing lines? We are so entertained today. And I want to caution us in the things that we do, in the things that we watch, in the things that we say, in the things that we think. Are you and I buying into the slow brainwash? How many cuss words does it take before I say no to a movie? How many? How many images on the screen of the computer is okay? How much sinful talk to my spouse 
to my kids is acceptable. How long am I going to continue to be lazy in a relationship with the ruler God of the universe? Chip. 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 God, I thank you for these boys. They have impressed so much upon me this week. So much upon me as to what it looks like to be a man who's seeking to live for the glory of our ruler. You. I don't want to lift these boys up. I want to lift you up. And God, I just pray, I'm just going to let the text and the story that's here, I'm just going to kind of lay it before us that we would leave here today asking ourselves the question, is our life fitting more like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah? Or am I more like the others? Second Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls me because I have concluded this. That he who has died for all I die. And he died that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Lord, this brings us right back to the cross. Oh, may we do some business with you today and this week that we would be resolute men and women, teens of conviction, not rough around the edges and cruel, but men and women of conviction that see a big God ruler who we will stand before one day and give an account name of Christ we pray.